Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome back, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric, and with me today, I have a special guest. I have Dan Krinsky. He is a co-founder of PGX101 and has also served in faculty roles at Neomed or the Northeast Ohio Medical University down there in Rootstown, Ohio. He's also worked as a retail pharmacist for Giant Eagle for a number of years and was a graduate from the University of Toledo, class of 1981 for his bachelor's and 84 for his master's. Dan, what other uh, roles in pharmacy have you had and what other things have, do you want to share about yourself? Well, thanks, Eric. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk with you today. When I got out of my graduate program, I did a lot of work in pharmacokinetics, and my goal was to try and find a position in a hospital where I could apply that in patient care. And I spent a year in North Carolina at a small hospital just outside of Charlotte, where I was hired in to develop some clinical services, but that didn't work out. So I ended up moving over to Birmingham, Alabama, and took the position as the clinical coordinator for the clinical pharmacokinetic service at UAB Hospital. And in addition, I had a role as adjunct professor at Auburn University College of Pharmacy. So all of the Auburn PharmD students had to do a rotation through my pharmacokinetic service. And while I was there, I involved a number of other pharmacists, and we grew the program from seeing 20 or 30 patients a month to seeing about 50 or 60 patients a day. And that was extremely rewarding because it gave me a chance to apply what I learned in graduate school. After about seven years of doing that, uh, we decided it was time to move back closer to home, which was Northeast Ohio. Came back and took a position with Kaiser Permanente in managed care, and I was on the P&T committee work developing some disease management programs, uh, some patient care programs. We worked with all the pharmacies that were part of the Kaiser network to help them become better engaged with patients and do counseling and a lot of focus on pediatric asthma and some other disease states that affected our, uh, our patients. From Kaiser, I transitioned over to a shared position with Ritzman Pharmacies, no longer in business, unfortunately, but they were a small chain located here in Northeast Ohio. And in addition to helping them develop some patient care programs and really work in the MTM space before it was MTM, I was also on faculty at Ohio Northern University and did some teaching there and a lot of precepting of their students in the pharmacies at, at the Ritzman's. Did that for about seven years and then transitioned over to Lexicomp. Lexicomp, I worked for that medical publisher, had a lot of different roles there. I was in charge of the academic sales team for a while. I worked in business partnering, got to know a lot of folks with EPHA because EPHA was a big client of Lexicomp's. Got to know folks at UpToDate and some other larger businesses that, again, worked with Lexicomp and incorporated their content. And after about seven years at Lexicomp, I transitioned over to Marixa. And while I was at Marixa, they were the one of the two major MTM players. And I set up a website called rxwiki.com. And that website was designed to help educate consumers on drug information and help them to answer questions after they had been given a CMR or had an interaction with one of the pharmacists. So it was kind of a system where the pharmacists that perform the CMRs would refer patients to the website to get additional information to help answer questions. Marixta uh, had some changes that led me to seeking some other professional challenges, I guess you will say. And that's when I found the position at Giant Eagle and Neomed that I started about 11, a little over 11 years ago. And I was in that shared position for about 10 years. And I was at Giant Eagle in Ravenna, Ohio helped set up some of their medication therapy management programs. We did wellness screenings. We did a lot of patient education, consumer, and outreach into the communities. Did a lot of student precepting. And then when I was at Neomed, I did a lot of teaching and OTC self-care. 
some pharmacy management courses, a few therapeutics, and then a number of electives. You probably have you probably have the most well-rounded resume of, of anybody I've ever <laughs> talked to as a pharmacist. You've been in the clinical side, you've been on the research side, you've been on the pharmacy literature side of it. You've taught, you've worked. I mean, just everything. That's a that's amazing. Which part? I've been which part do you like the most? In pharmacy. Well, you know, it's interesting you ask it's that question because I think it just depends on where I was in my career. When I was in Birmingham, being able to work alongside physicians and having surgery residents call me at three in the morning and say, you know, put my patient on antibiotics or cardiology residents call and say, you need to adjust these antiarrhythmics or the transplant service would call and say, you need to adjust these medications for our patients, burn patients. You know, that was extremely rewarding because I was truly using my knowledge from graduate school in a practice setting and working with the medical teams and the pharmacy teams. And it was just extremely rewarding. Transitioning over to academia and community practice, that was extremely rewarding as well because, again, you're teaching the next generation of pharmacists and you're also working with patients to help them feel better about themselves and get the most benefit from their medicine. So I think I've been, again, very blessed with my profession and the opportunities that have been afforded to me. And each one of those has been rewarding in its own special way. But I think one of the, if I had to say one thing that's been the most rewarding to me, it's, it's academia and training the next generation of pharmacists. That's, again, been extremely rewarding. Yeah, which that kind of transition, transitions us well into where your current role is with uh, the co-founder of PGX101. You guys are doing a lot of uh, CE and stuff like that to help kind of show the world of pharmacogenomics to pharmacists, as that is a, a very burgeoning field right now. In fact, it's the reason we have you on here is because it's got a little bit of scrutiny <laughs> through some of the uh, the political mechanisms that we have in our in our current government. Can you explain pharmacogenomics a little bit to some of the listeners? Because that's a kind of a broad sure. topic. So the human genome was mapped out and identified, and that research took a little over 10 years and finished back in 2003. And through that process, we learned that there were certain genes and certain variants of genes that affected drug therapy. If you take the human genome experience and you kind of put it through a few filters, there's specific parts of that that we can apply to drug therapy. So we know that there are certain hepatic enzymes that do things to medications to either help eliminate the drugs or make them into their more active form or whatever it is, those enzymes are controlled by certain genes and variants. And so that whole complex equation allows us to study how those genes and these drugs interact to give us a better idea of how we can prescribe some of these medications. And over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen an explosion of evidence that's been published We have guidelines that are available for over 200 medications. We have over 200 drugs where FDA labeling either suggests or requires pharmacogenomic testing to be done to determine if that drug is the best candidate for that patient. Uh, So there's a lot of new evidence, but I think we're still just seeing the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the amount of evidence that I anticipate we're going to see and the amount of evidence that I think we're going to need to see this become more mainstream where you're ordering pharmacogenomic testing similar to what you would do with a chem seven or a renal panel in patients now. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. This topic really interests me because like you said, it's, it's a black and white thing. You can have someone's DNA and have the genome and know what's going to work better based upon whatever factors you find in that genome, whether it's a Mm -hmm. metabolized drugs through a certain pathway, better or worse whether it's in certain 
ethnic ethnic populations do it differently than other ethnic populations, whether it's better or worse, and you can really help taper the drug to that. One of the ones that I, I think, and you can elaborate on this, but what we've seen in the past decade or so was there's a huge uproar about the proton pump inhibitors like omeprazole interacting with clopidogrel or Plavix. Mm-hmm. One of the issues with that, I was actually on my rotations at the time. This was, I think, back in 2009 or 2008. One of the issues with that was is the study came out and said like 20% or some high number of patients have this major drug interaction. But really when they dove back into it, they saw that I think it was specifically Asians had a much higher rate of it than other populations, whereas Caucasian people had almost like very little, like 1% chance of it. Is, is that correct and kind of like where we're doing with some of this stuff? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting how we initially thought that this was a major drug interaction that avoid the combination at all costs because clopidogrel is a prodrug. And if you affect the enzyme that converts clopidogrel to its active form, you're not going to have enough antiplatelet activity and so on and so on. But again, as they've looked closer at the data, they found that it's not necessarily just the drug interaction that's playing a role here. It's also pharmacogenomics, where you've got a certain type of patient that might be a very slow metabolizer of CYP2C19 or an ultra rapid metabolizer. And in both those cases, clopidogrel is probably not going to be your best option for antiplatelet therapy. There's actually a lawsuit that's still active over in Hawaii because manufacturers of Plavix kind of knew what the situation was when it came to specific types of patient populations that might not respond as well to their medication. There was really nothing done about that. And what they found was that a fair high percentage of patients that lived in Hawaii could not metabolize clopidogrel to its active form. So clopidogrel was not going to be active and there was a higher incidence of secondary events and negative outcomes in those patients. So when you put the whole thing together, you realize, wow, there's specific information we should know about patients based on their genetic makeup, based on their ancestry, based on their race and those types of things, where having that information is going to be extremely helpful to take a more proactive approach to their medications versus just assuming that a drug is going to work, prescribing the drug, and then seeing, you know, X percent of the patients not respond or have a negative outcome. Yeah. And I really, I really like this field because like you said, you can really kind of predict what's going to happen or at least have a better chance of it. So if you see, it looks like someone should respond or someone shouldn't, if that person who shouldn't respond, you might pick a different <clears throat> drug. Like in the case of Plavix or clopidogrel, you might go with Effian or Prasigrel just because right. it isn't, doesn't have that pro-drug effect, which although it might be more expensive is or by a little bit, if you're talking the difference as a heart attack or, you know, having a major clot issue, I'm going to pay a little bit more for that drug. That just makes common sense. So yes, I, um, it's going to be interesting to see how insurance companies address this, because right now some insurance companies will pay for specific testing of certain variants, but it's very narrow. It's not really widespread where insurance companies are covering the costs. And so, you know, one of the things that I think we need to do as a profession is promote, again, taking a proactive approach with the availability of this type of information. So if we know that X percent of patients in this category have the potential to have a negative outcome, let's test them before we prescribe the drug versus just prescribing a drug and hoping that they respond. Yeah, because I'm, I'm really the glad consequences you, are significant. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because pharmacists in our role, even as, you know, quote unquote, just a retail pharmacist, we catch so many things that doctors aren't thinking about, uh, whether it be just simple drug interactions or like you said, some of those more population specific type of things. For instance, what patient do you want to start a beta blocker in versus an ACE inhibitor, which isn't even in this field, but we catch that stuff all the time. And speaking to exactly what you said, 
I'm really glad you mentioned that as pharmacists, we should take a lead in this. In fact, that was one of my questions I want to make sure to ask you is, in what ways can we lead in this field? I, just as an example, I know one I catch all the time are patients who are discharged from the ER with Cipro for a, a, a UTI or urinary tract infection, and they're also on tizanidine. And that's a basic, you know, kind of drug interaction. And some doctors are okay with it. Other doctors aren't, even though it is, it does have like a major red flag that pops up in our pharmacy system. What ways do you think that pharmacists can really go and own this? Well, first of all, I think we need to own this because it is pharmacogenomic. So it is related to drug therapy and we are the drug therapy experts. We have more training and education in drug therapy than all the other healthcare professionals combined. So I really feel very passionate about us owning this in our profession. And I think with the current opportunities that are out there, you know, pharmacists should be looking for ways to expand their practice. And there's a lot of changes going on in pharmacy right now. I've, I can't remember the last time I've seen so many what I would consider very significant changes both in academia and in practice with what large chains are doing with closing stores and reducing hours and reducing pharmacists and using more technology. Pharmacists are going to need to get more creative in ways to maintain a job or you know, maintain their standing in the community. And pharmacogenomics gives us that opportunity. Granted, there's not as much evidence out there as some people would like. There's a lot of physicians that really don't appreciate what pharmacogenomics can do to help their patients. But you know, I see this as an opportunity for us to provide education to other healthcare providers in addition to ourselves to educate payers, to let them know where there's specific evidence that suggests that there's value in them. Again, quote unquote, taking the leap to pay for the testing up front, which will serve everybody much better down the road. We're in the best position to do this. We're the most accessible healthcare provider. Again, we're the best trained in drug therapy. This is an opportunity for us. And if we don't take advantage of this, somebody else will because pharmacogenomics is not going away. We talked about clopidogrel. We've talked about, I mean, some antidepressants. There's oncology applications to this. There's other cardiology applications for this. Pain management. Uh, I know that they're doing a lot of testing in children's hospitals and kids to determine their 2D6 status because 2D6 is responsible for metabolizing codeine and tramadol to its active form. And there's a lot of reports of negative interactions in kids that have been given codeine. And that's because their 2D6 status is resulting in excessive dosing of, of the medication. So again, I keep pointing, coming back to there's enough information out there that pharmacists should look for ways to expand their practice, to use what evidence we have to continue to research and acquire new evidence and information to find better ways to help take care of our patients and to integrate ourselves into the healthcare system. You know, we're pushing for provider status, pushing for ways to do more work directly shoulder to shoulder with physicians. And I think bringing this to the table is a huge advantage for us. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of hit on it a little bit loosely, but also more directly by naming some of the disease states, but you hit on like mental health, oncology or cancer treatment, cardiology, heart health, and you hit on obviously pain medications. That's a lot of what every pharmacist and even just every patient deals with. So when sure. you're talking about custom dosing stuff like this, that is right in the pharmacist realm. I can't tell you how many times when I have like an urgent care call or I have someone else call and they're trying to get a little bit of a history on the patient. We'll say, oh yeah, hey, they took this before. That dose might not work now. Let's try this one. Let's switch antibiotics. Let's try a different dose. Or we're calling because the dose they wrote for was absurdly high. So as a safety check, we're going back to them. This is another step that if we have that information or we have access to that, we can look at it. We can use it in our evaluative tools to make sure that we have the best possible outcome. 
which for something like a simple cold might not be, you know, the biggest thing in the world, but a simple cold and an elderly person who's got, you know, on pain meds, on antidepressants, who's maybe going through oncology treatment, like, you know, that's a very specific case, but that's someone where, hey, this could be warranted to make sure that we don't blow out their kidneys or cause them more harm in the process. So I love the way you kind of hit on all of that. And that's a huge cost savings and mortality savings down the road. Yes. Uh, one of the challenges we have, in addition to, you know, who's going to pay for this, is how do we integrate this information into our systems? So when you're working in a community pharmacy, if somebody's had testing done, how does that information get into the system so it becomes part of the data that's analyzed to create the messages that come up on the screen when the pharmacist is evaluating prescriptions? You know, I have some history with helping design computer systems uh, for one big corporate chain. And that's something that, at least as of right now, I know they weren't, uh, last I worked for them, they weren't even thinking about. But that's a whole other thing that as a pharmacist, you're not just getting a drug interaction now, you're getting like a uh, an enzyme interaction or like a genomics alert that pops up that yep. could work with some of the drug interactions or some of the drugs around to say, hey, alert, look at this. But now we have to look at it from an evaluative standpoint of, is that okay? Or is that something that we absolutely need to avoid? Or is there a better option out there? I mean, there's not, there's never a black and white answer in pharmacy, which I feel like so many people think it's, hey, I have a prescription, here you go. Or the doctor sent you an order in the hospital, just send it back up. But there's so much more that goes into that. And this kind of complicates that field a little bit, but for the better, I feel it really would help get a better outcome for the patient if you could have more information. And obviously more information is more power and it might not matter to me or you, but that one patient whose life it saves, it's going to matter a ton to you. Now, if you spread across the whole U.S., that could easily be several million people. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at you look at adherence rates for a lot of chronic medications and you look at just the whole category of mental health meds, the non-adherence rates anywhere between 40 and 65 percent. My opinion is that a percentage of those people that are not adherent are patients that are opportunities for us through pharmacogenomic testing and evaluating other data to get them on a better medication that's going to give them the response that they're looking for because they're prescribed a drug that is not providing the response that they anticipated so they don't take the medication. And it's not just pharmacogenomic information because I think we need to do a better job as a profession of giving patients reasonable expectations with the medications they're prescribed. So we got to counsel them to let them know you might not see a response for four to six weeks and go through all that. But I do feel that based on what I've been reading with some of the pharmacogenomic tests that we can do, we can do a much better job of matching a medication to a patient if we have this additional information. Oh, and yeah, for sure. That, that's, that would that's be huge. huge. You know, people talk about the opioid crisis, which, yes, it's significant, but I think even a bigger crisis is just the overall mental health crisis we have in our country. Yeah. I and mean, speaking of the politics of it, uh, we've seen President Trump, for whether you agree with him or not, mention mental illness or mental health dozens of times just in the past yep. week here in mid-August in 2019. I, I feel like that I don't want to get into the gun debate so much, but looking at just mental health, we all recognize mental health is a problem. It doesn't matter what generation you're in. There's older people who are on you know antidepressants because they're going through dialysis care. And my, my grandpa did that. And for me, that was like a step back to be like, whoa, like he's this tough older guy who's been a farmer his whole life, but they went through a couple different SSRIs to find one that actually worked well for him between mm -hmm. like, you know, his dialysis to make sure that, you know, the way it was eliminated through his body, it was balanced. All right. And to make sure it wasn't snowing him. So he was just like a vegetable all day. And sometimes, yep. you know, you'd see him take two doses on accident because he forgot or, you know, he was tired after and he couldn't remember if he took it in the morning. So he'd take it again. You'd see him just snowed out in the chair. So exactly what you're hitting on there, the mental health thing is huge. And it doesn't just affect a specific group of people. Tons of people are on these medications. 
I know there's a big worry about overprescribing them, or you see the same doctor who always writes for, say, citalopram for somebody, which I think is one you mentioned in a CE earlier this year that can be affected by these enzymes that might not work well in some people, but in other people it might work super well. Yep. So that's exactly. a, that's a prime example mm-hmm. of where we can help either adjust the dose or adjust the drug to fit the person. Mm-hmm. And mental health is that's a huge field that is, I feel like it's getting more attention, but there's not enough being done about it. And this is a very black and white way of analyzing that, which is why I like it instead of just kind of going with these vague feelings, which do need to be addressed. But having the black and white aspect makes it a lot easier to know this should work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you talk about ways through advocacy and, and quote unquote politics that we can advance our profession. You know, we here in Ohio, we've been fortunate to be able to get provider status approved and we're getting towards the final stages of having rules written that will allow us to then implement it. You know, we're pushing for this at the national level. You know, that to me is is critical because, again, you've got thousands of pharmacists that want to take care of their patients, that want to do more for their patients, that are looking for additional opportunities to expand practice, change practice, utilize the tools and resources they have. And if we can take provider status and all the current tools and resources that we're able to use and now add in pharmacogenomics and the ability to truly individualize or personalize medicine, I see tremendous opportunities for research, for documenting outcomes, for even changing curricula in colleges of pharmacy to pay more attention to something like this, because this applies to a lot of the different therapeutic categories that are currently being taught. And I'm not sure that we're spending enough time on this part of it to give the students, again, a perspective of what they're going to be seeing, hopefully, when they get out into practice. I I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, To kind of recap a little bit what you said, uh, Senator Matt Dolan was kind of the lead uh, legislator who pushed for provider status in Ohio and helped get it through. So big shout out. Thanks to him. Would love him. Love to have him on here sometime to see how his thoughts are on that. And I'm glad to hear that you're a little more active in some of this political stuff on the, the, the footwork of it, I know, than I am. But uh, to hear that there's some stuff coming to help set guidelines with that is always good to hear, too. So we can expand kind of what we're doing for the, the Medicaid recipients, if nothing else, since that's what the state has control of. Um, mm-hmm. s- some of the other people I know who are on the health committee, uh, you can look these up. They might be some of your representatives or senators. Um, Senator David Burke, also a pharmacist, ironically enough, is on the Senate Health uh, and Medicaid Committee. I know Randy Kleitz, representative from the Portage County area, which is actually right where Neomed is, and down by the that Rootstown, Ravenna area, Kent of Ohio. She is on the health committee. I know Terrence Upchurch in the uh, Cleveland area is also on there. There's there's more I'm forgetting, but that's just off the top of my head real quick. So if those are any of your representatives, that'd be someone good to reach out to to kind of share some of this information. Because, I mean, this would be a great thing that we could definitely help. And I almost look at it like investing. Yep. You, you're kind of investing in, a, and I want to say it's a high-risk company, but maybe like a moderate-risk company because I'm not sure what the costs are on this, which we'll get into in a little bit. But if you're going to spend a few hundred dollars when you could possibly avoid a couple hundred thousand and something like a heart attack or the fallout that happens around suicide and all the lost economic benefits on top of the distress that spills out into the rest of the community from something like that, you're investing a couple hundred bucks that could really end up paying exponential dividends. So it's almost like that moderate risk stock, like that beginning company that you're looking at going, well, this makes sense. But now how do we, how do I invest in this right? How do I spend my money right on it? Which is something that every state legislator is always looking at, and especially on a federal level when we're currently operating at a a trillion dollar budget gap. Mm -hmm. So what do you, like, what are you seeing for prices of this? Like how, what, what is the average price for a test cost? I'm just curious. Yeah. It depends on how many variants you have tested, but the range is probably anywhere between two and $400. And that's to get... Most of the variants that look at the enzymes that are going to be responsible for a great majority of your medications. 
That's and, way cheaper than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's really not bad at all. I mean, it used to be in the thousands of thousands of dollars, but as it's become more available through different companies, the, the cost has come down, the cost of uh, performing the test is, has come down. You know, you brought up an interesting point when you talk about an investment. That's been my feeling from the start. And, and again, you get a lot of payers that take a more reactive approach where they'll pay once something comes up, but to pay to prevent, you know, it took took them so long to recognize that if you paid X amount of dollars for the seasonal influenza shot, it would save you X times, you know, 20 in, you know, reduced time missed from work and all those things. So they finally kind of got the message with immunizations. And I kind of equate this to, to that as well, because let's say you did a genomic test for a patient and today you're looking at drug X and you can help better prescribe and dose drug X. But let's say in three years that patient's diagnosed with breast cancer. And now the patient needs some chemotherapy and the patient needs some pain management. You don't have to redo those tests. You've got the pharmacogenomic information at your fingertips to help you and guide you to more, again, personalized medicine for that patient. You can better prescribe the chemotherapy regimen. You can better prescribe pain management because you have that additional information. Yeah, so for, for sure. It's that's an investment. That's, you know, unless patients have a liver transplant, yeah. uh, it's really not going to change. Yeah. And I mean, that would be into something else just to watch for, but obviously, you know, if they have a liver transplant and when you said two to $400, I immediately working retail, think of the price of stuff. I think 200 bucks is a roughly plus or minus, depending where you go, the cash price for like Plavix for one month. <laughs> yeah. So you're essentially one month's worth of one prescription that you could have in perpetuity to help people make a better, better clinical decision about you and your healthcare. That just, now that I heard the price, I'm like 120% on board with this. I was like 99 before I saw a little bit where maybe eh, this might not be the, there could maybe be a downside to it, but that just kind of pushed me over the top with how inexpensive that is. That's absolutely pennies yeah. in healthcare. That's less than, a, I think my last doctor's appointment, my insurance paid more for that. And that was just to check my blood pressure, check my weight and say, you're okay and get out the door. Yeah. Uh, and again, we don't have to test everybody. So you would go through and you would identify, okay, which patients are taking specific medications and are either at risk or clinically are not responding the way you'd like. Mm -hmm. Let's test those individuals and let's start there with your patients that are going to probably provide you with the best ROI initially. And then you just gradually build it in to your practice to determine more proactively, you know, hey, instead of waiting until I see the patient's not responding based on my experience that I've you know, seen in the past, let's do the testing. Let's get the results back in four to seven days. And then we'll get the patient on a medication that we know has a better chance of providing a positive outcome. I think one of the other keys too here is we're seeing with some of the 23andMe stuff, I think it was them or one of the genetic testing sites that we ironically already sell at the pharmacy, that they sold some of the information to Big Pharma. And I know some people that had their hair all up in a dander. But one thing that you, you were mentioning was that you're specifically testing for these enzymes or these uh, metabolic pathways. So you weren't necessarily taking the whole genome and then sharing the whole information. So an insurance company can then look at it and go, oh, you have a high risk for you know such and such. And then trying right. to get ahead on that. So that, I think that's really a key thing here is that, that you're not sharing a bunch of other information like, hey, this person's prone to addiction, never give them a pain med type of thing. Right. And it's important for consumers to understand the difference because you can go on Ancestry.com and 23andMe and you can do genetic testing, which will give you pages and pages of information to tell you where your ancestors are from and what your propensity is to have curly hair versus straight hair and this and that and the other characteristics. 
there might be some information there about things that have to do with medications. But what we're talking about here is testing that's done specific for drug therapy. Yes, there's patient concerns that, you know, my information is going to get out there. And if I'm at a risk for this and this and this, they're going to hold it against me. Well, there's legislation that was passed in the Obama administration that prevents this information from being used against you or being used to penalize you in any way. So that's not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's a good point to clarify. Yeah. And the vendors that we deal with are vendors that protect the information and, you know, nothing's 100 percent foolproof, but it is protected under HIPAA. And it's only shared with healthcare providers that need to use the information to care for the patient. So it's like anything else related to your healthcare and other tests that are done. So we try and help people to understand that this information is treated like any of your health information. It's very well protected. It's not going to be used for any other reason than to help us as healthcare providers take better care of you, the patient. Yeah. And one of those things that like I was saying, 23andMe, I believe they sold a bunch of information to, I think it was Bristol Myers. I could be wrong on which drug company it was. But as you had told me before, when you were doing a CE for this at Ohio Pharmacists Association, they de-identified all of it so that it couldn't be used. And that was one of the key things to it that I was like, oh, okay, well, that's a little reassuring. The article I read didn't say that. Yes. Uh, Another thing about 23andMe that's important for everybody to understand is they're going to be coming out with a direct-to-consumer pharmacogenomic testing kit. While that's interesting and that's that's what they want to do, what healthcare providers and patients need to realize is that that information is not actionable data because that test has not been approved for healthcare providers to be able to take action on the data that's returned to the patient. They may get results that say that you're a slow metabolizer of this and a rapid metabolizer of this and this and that and the other. But as a pharmacist or a healthcare provider, if I want to use pharmacogenomic data to adjust your medications, I need to do my own test with a company that's been FDA approved to give me actionable data. So the 23andMe is going to be informational, but it's not actionable. Yeah, I, I kind of compare it to almost like Apple having the EKG or ECG on, on a watch. It's like a one-way lead that gives you an EKG. It's not the standard 12 lead that is the diagnosis like criteria for that. Is that kind of yep. what? Okay. Exactly. So you, you brought it up, and so I'm going to kind of bring it up here too. In November 2018, the FDA actually made a statement on this, and I'm going to kind of read like the, what I thought was the big takeaway from this. So I'm just going to read right from it here. Uh, They put, today we are warning the public about FDA's concerns with pharmacogenetic tests whose claims have not been reviewed by the FDA, which you kind of touched on. Specifically, we are warning consumers about many such genetic tests being marketed directly to consumers or offered through healthcare providers that claim to predict how a patient will respond to specific medications. These tests make such claims that have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not supported by prescribing recommendations in FDA-approved drug labels, also may not be supported by scientific and clinical evidence and may not be accurate. Do you agree with this or what can you put from your side of this into it to kind of give us a little bit better context of what we're testing and what they mean by this? Well, no, I completely agree with it. You know, there's going to be a lot of companies that are going after the quick buck and they see the uh, interest in genetics and people finding out about their ancestry and all those things. So, you know, there's companies that are going to be in this just to, uh, you know, tag along and, and try and make some money because there's some good money to be made. The FDA is concerned about quality, they're concerned about evidence, and they're concerned about the right things. So I think it's important for people to understand what the FDA said, and that is that there are certain tests that are approved for use and there are certain tests that aren't. So as healthcare providers, we need to make sure that 
we understand that, that we discuss this information with our patients and we find quality labs. We find labs that have FDA approved tests. We find organizations that we want to work with, just like we want to find a drug manufacturer or any kind of vendor in a more traditional pharmacy setting that has the quality control processes and has products that are FDA approved that we can then dispense or utilize with our patients to improve care. So I do agree with the statements and, you know, you have to sort through the the garbage from the quality and you know, let the cream rise to the top and work with those quality companies. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I kind of related to like the online pharmacies for someone who works retail. Someone's like, oh, I can get this online for 20 bucks. I'm like, yeah, do you know where it's coming from? So, Well, it's like a lot of the supplements and natural products that are promoted yeah. that have no evidence behind them. You know, I taught a course at Neomed called Healthcare in the Media. And what we would do is look at claims in the media and break them down and find any evidence that would support those claims. And I'd say 80 to 90 percent of the claims being made were claims that had no evidence behind them. It's just all this theory that if you take this chemical and we think that it does this and you put it in this form, then it must provide this result for the patient. But until you have evidence to support that, why waste your money and why take the risk? That reminds me of a four-letter word we hear in retail pharmacy all the time, and that's Dr. Oz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we saw that stuff all the time. So I'm glad that you were able to differentiate that there is different tests here with the one the ones that your company, like PGX 101, uses versus what's going to be in 23andMe, that there is a standard measuring difference because I'm sure they'll come out with some crazy price. You have to mail it away, and then they'll send you all this information. But unless it's really being evaluated or standardized, you have no idea what that actually means. Right. Yeah. So with that, we kind of talked about how places people can save money with this a little bit, kind of talked about the cost of it. So you actually teach this through PGX 101. I think you're teaching it yes. recently coming up here in Columbus and in Atlanta. Can you give us some dates and kind of what, uh, what you're going to do with that and what all is included in that? Sure. So my business partner, Sue Paul and I, we both attended the train the trainer program for the uh, NACDS test to learn pharmacogenomic certificate program that was developed by the University of Pittsburgh. There were 26 pharmacists throughout the country. We attended this. We became train the trainers for pharmacogenomics. And then Sue and I touched base about a year after that and kind of asked each other, how are you using this training? Well, I'm really not. I'm doing a little bit at school, but really not doing anything with it. So we decided to form a business because we felt that there was a need out there to train pharmacists and other healthcare providers in pharmacogenomics. And then we also wanted to utilize this training that we had obtained before we kind of forgot everything that we were taught. We formed this business. The program that we teach, again, is this test to learn program that was developed by the University of Pittsburgh. It's a 12-hour home study prior to an eight-hour live seminar. There's tremendous detail in the basic sciences pieces, in learning terminology, in you know learning about specific genes and variants, and a lot of detail in the home study course. And then in the live course, it's a little bit more application. So we teach you how do you apply this information, what types of patients. We go through case studies. We go through different types of evidence that's been published. We go through guidelines that have been published. And so it's kind of taking that home study material and then wrapping it up and putting it into this full-day seminar. And then Sue and I have built a couple extra smaller modules into our particular course, the live seminar, to again, give attendees a little bit more of a practical application take-home piece that they can then use when they get back into their practice. 
who are you seeing sign up for this? Is it more like clinical pharmacists, the hospitals? Is it retail? Is it just a smattering? Like, what are you seeing who are who It's are a nice mix. We started off doing a, our first program was with a bunch of uh, hospital pharmacists down in Cincinnati because what they were going to do is start to do more genomic testing in the hospital and build these pharmacogenomic alerts into their Epic system. Oh, wow. So when the pharmacists were on the floors entering orders, if genomic testing had been done, that was going to come up on their screen, just like we talked about earlier, where they'd be able to have this information and then be able to analyze this to determine, so what are the next steps? So they want to get all their pharmacists trained to be able to act on that information. Since that time, we've probably seen more pharmacists in the community setting that are looking for ways to expand their practice or even change to get into their own business where this is part of what they would offer to their uh, clients and to their other local providers. So it's been more of a community type pharmacist that have shown an interest more recently. We have a program coming up in Columbus on Saturday the 24th. And then we have another program a little over a month later. I think it's on Saturday, the 28th of September down in Atlanta. We pick locations and we pick partners in those locations where people in those communities have shown an interest. So we've talked to people in St. Louis, out in Arizona, up in New England. So we're willing to travel to put seminars on just about anywhere people would like, because I think more people are starting to recognize that this is an opportunity. And I want to get in on this a little bit earlier than most folks. What I thought was kind of interesting there, what you mentioned is you're hitting at some of like the major metropolitan hubs, but not just that. They seem to be like specific hubs that also have a huge focus on a lot of those places have pharmacy schools. So they're probably a little more buy-in. They also have Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, children's hospitals or specialty hospitals, Columbus having Nationwide, Grady down in Atlanta, name any litany of them up in the Northeast up there. So I think that's kind of interesting too. And you mentioned hospitals were starting to, and I kind of feel like from the way the current payment structure is set up, they're the most incentivized. Because if they can keep a patient from being readmitted by getting them on the right medication, they'll eat that 200 bucks or whatever the cost is because it'll save them thousands or tens of thousands in the back end for just that one yep. patient directly. Yep. I, I thought that was interesting that you said that. Anything else you care to elaborate on with either your teaching or about this field before we kind of come close to wrapping this up? Again, I think this is a great opportunity for our profession. I I hope more colleges of pharmacy build this into their curriculum. I hope more pharmacists realize that this gives them another inroads with other people in their community, whether it's physicians, whether it's patient groups or payers or whomever, to expand their practice, to get into something that can be extremely rewarding when you can see the benefits of your expertise and this additional information to help patients. My business partner, she works in a a clinic setting down in Cincinnati, and they use this type of testing on a pretty regular basis down there. And during our live seminar, we get one of her physicians and Sue to collectively talk together about specific patients where they've taken these individuals that were not responding, that were really doing poorly, changing drug therapy and adjusting drug therapy based not just on genomics, but patient response and a number of other factors to come up with patients that have these amazing outcomes. And to see and hear about those types of situations, to me, suggests that there's so much more that we could be doing. So I, I'm very excited about this. I, I I've talked to others that are very excited about this. Uh, I look forward to teaching more pharmacists, to seeing more evidence, to working with whomever I need to work with to help generate evidence and interest and passion and excitement so that we can uh, take this to the next level. Yeah, I really think this would be an awesome thing to do as a pharmacist. And, you know, one thing we don't get enough of anymore because of the forces that be with the payers, whether it be the PBMs or what have you, 
is those light bulb moments, those moments we can sit down and be like, oh, hey, look, this drug isn't working for you because of this reason. Let's go to this. And then we can see that turnaround in probably a pretty short amount of time. So yeah, I'm all in on this with you. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so before I close, and since you're so well-rounded in pharmacy and so active <laughs> in the field, I always have a few, try and throw in a fun question or two for people like you, to just kind of see what you would say. So sure. if you could change one thing about pharmacy overall, what would you change? Change. I guess I would have pushed for provider status 30 years ago. And I say that because I've been around long enough to have gone through the Kepler and Strand and pharmaceutical care and pharmacist care and transitioning to medication therapy management. And while all these ideas were phenomenal in the community setting, without provider status, without us being treated as equals with other healthcare providers to be able to deliver a high quality level of service and be compensated fairly for that. To me, we've we've struggled to to gain the the credibility and the recognition that we that I think we deserve, that I think we've earned. But and we need to continue to earn that. I just think that having seen where we've been and where we're trying to go, if we'd have pushed for something like this 30 plus years ago, I, I think our profession would look a lot different than it does now. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that one. I think that's probably going to be the uh, the one that after I ask a few people this, they're going to I'm going to just tell them you can't say provider status because we all want that for a number of reasons. If there was mm-hmm. one pharmacy law you could change, federal, state, local, whatever it is, what would you change? Oh, pharmacy law to change or, or add? I guess I could put that on. Well, I think, and I don't know if this goes along with provider status or whatever, but I think giving pharmacists the authority or ability to adjust currently prescribed drug therapy would be huge. Now, granted, there's a lot of pieces and parts that go into that, but I look at all the patients that I've taken care of in the past in the community setting, knowing that, for example, you have somebody with diabetes and they were started off on X dose of insulin and their A1C is still high and their blood sugar is still high. To go through all the steps that are necessary to get that higher dose of insulin prescribed, to me, seems a little unnecessary when if you come into the pharmacy, you have this highly educated healthcare provider who's able to do that. I would have liked to have seen us have that opportunity to do that at that point in time because the drug was already prescribed. We're monitoring outcomes. We should be able to make that adjustment. You know, it's funny you say that because I was talking to a friend from Canada recently and found out that in Canada, when something like Losartan goes on back order, they're allowed to switch to therapeutic alternatives. And that's exactly what you just kind of mentioned is that they're allowed to, you know, do a little bit more leeway of things like that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, that would be awesome. And some, again, somebody who works retail, you know, how many times I have to send a fax, call, follow up, waste all my time to try and get something simple like that switch when in the back of my head, I'm like, I know the answer. You know, there would have to be documentation and you'd have to have, you know, access to electronic health record, which to me is another huge thing that we need to make sure we try and address is access to uh, information about our patients. Um, As you know, working in the community setting, without that information, you're really left high and dry. And, you know, I really don't want the ability to adjust drug therapy unless I have that information at my fingertips. Yes, that's a that's a huge caveat to that, too. Yep. Great. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on our, uh, the podcast today and really uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge about PGX 101. What's a good place people can find PGX 101 so that we can get the more people trained on this? Sure. So if you go to our website, which is www.pgx101.com, we have information there about upcoming seminars. We're posting newsletters. We're going to have 
some other information about joining PGX 101 and becoming kind of a charter member where you'd get access to additional materials we put together. We're going to have, hopefully we're going to start a blog here in the not too distant future. So we want to keep people abreast of changes in the profession because there's a lot of changes that are taking place on a regular basis. So right now that's the best place to go is our website. And we're uh, continuing to work on that to uh, make it more user-friendly and enhance the information that we're offering to, uh, to the visitors to the site. Great. All right. Well, thanks again for uh, joining us in this episode. That concludes your third episode of the Political Pharmacist Podcast.